Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. We release a new episode every Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. This week, we dig into ESG funds, which promise investors strong returns while keeping the climate and their conscience clean. But is it all it's cracked up to be? I want to understand how ESG funds are put together and whether they really make a difference, and if they're going to actually make us any money. And later, I asked the dumb question of the week. Why would anyone buy bonds with a negative yield? Okay, let's get into it. Since 2016, the value of investments in ESG products has grown from $23 trillion to $35 trillion. Is this just the latest investing fad, an excuse to charge higher fees, or is it really making a difference? Robin, maybe let's start off by clarifying what do we mean by ESG? Well, the idea here is that you choose companies to invest in which satisfy certain criteria. And it's broadly aligned with ethical investing, with certain definitions of what that means. So ESG, what it actually stands for, environmental, social and governance. So environmental impact on the planet, social relationships with employees, customers and community, and then governance is corporate leadership standards. And I think the claim around ESG investing is it's kind of win-win-win. So it's good for the company in a way, and it raises their value. It's good for shareholders, and these companies should outperform. And it's good for society and the planet. Now, immediately, my alarm bells start going when something claims to be win-win-win with no downside. I mean, if you're going to be cynical and old like me, then you could say that this is just a way of charging higher fees, because presumably these funds come with a higher management fee. And they're very easy to market to people who have a certain way of seeing the world. So perhaps this is just a way of generating higher fees for essentially the same product. So let's try and not be too cynical to start with then. (laughs) So how are these funds actually put together? How are they constructed? Well, there are a couple of ways of doing it. One of them is to take a parent index. So it could be, say... MSCI, which is a big indexing company, they've got a global index, which has a huge proportion of the stocks in the world. Then you go through each of the companies one by one. And when you say you go through, there's a manager who does that for you. Well, there's a huge team at MSCI that does this. They go through it name by name. And they screen based on these criteria. So they're crossing out the oil companies and they're crossing out the weapons companies. Exactly. So that's kind of like a a subtractive approach to constructing the index. Or you can say, instead of that, what I'll do is I'll say, I like this sector, I don't like that sector. So instead of doing the subtractive approach, you just have a tilt towards a certain sector. For example, it could be IT which generally is seen as ESG compliant. Did no one listen to our podcast about Meta last week? (laughs) (laughs) So maybe let's take a concrete example of of an index fund here. So in the UK, we could invest in Vanguard's ESG fund, which is the Developed World All Cap Equity Index Fund. Boy, they don't come up with snappy titles. And what that does is it tracks the FTSE developed all capped choice index. So basically what it does is, like you said, it takes that broad index of developed markets and it underweights energy and utilities, industrial goods and food, beverage and tobacco by crossing out some of those companies. And the effect of that is in that index, it has just over 5,000 stocks, whereas the parent index has just around 6,000. 
And it does kind of change the composition of the index. So the top 10 holdings in that choice um, ESG index are over 20% of the funds. So it's quite concentrated. And the dividend yield is lower. So it's 1.35 versus 1.73. And I think that's because you've crossed out, you know, some utilities and energy companies which tend to have a higher dividend yield. So I think that's a fair summary. Usually you don't get a huge difference from the parent index. And that consequence of that, the obvious consequence, is that you don't get a huge difference in return or a huge difference in risk. There is a slight increase in the concentration, as you say, because if you're crossing names out, then you've got less stocks. And you have a sector tilt, probably. So I I think the other point is that there is another approach, which is called impact investing. So instead of saying, I'm going to take a parent index and cross stuff out, or tilting in one way or another, you build the fund from the ground up to achieve certain key performance indicators. So for example, how much CO2 has been avoided from being emitted into the atmosphere by buying this company. So for example, if you buy a wind power generator, you can actually put a number on that in terms of millions of tons of CO2. So these KPIs are a very good way of monitoring for every pound or dollar that you put into the fund, how much impact has it actually had. So I think if you do want to achieve something more tangible and measurable, impact funds are probably the way to go. I mean, compared to the other approaches, they're much less popular. And is that because the returns are likely to be lower? You're really focusing there on the you know, environmental concerns rather than stock performance? Yeah, I mean, you will be tilting away from market cap weighted indexes a lot. You'll be taking much more concentration risk. So it is much more of an active stance in terms of both asset allocation and stock selection, but also in terms of the risk that you're taking. And many people, I think, aren't willing to take that risk. Maybe, maybe that's the explanation for it. And I think most people are like, yeah, I want to uh, save the planet, but I don't really want to compromise my returns. I want both. So it's interesting. I mean, you talked about investing for your daughter and uh, you chose ESG, didn't you? And the reason you gave me was really interesting. Yeah, so I uh, opened a junior ISA for her, which is, you know, a tax advantage account for children in the UK. And my wife and I, we were thinking, oh, what should we put in there? Because we believe in, you know, just buying the broad index fund. And then we thought, oh, but when she's living in a sort of hellscape in 30 years, she's going to be like, oh, my God, you made me complicit in this. So we thought, you know, we'll get an ESG fund in there and we'll just sort of (laughs) clean our conscience that way, even if it doesn't make too much difference. At least we tried. I bet she won't care at all. She'll just say, oh, well, she gave me the best returns. Why? did you do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think I think many people, they see this as a better way to invest because they'll have less impact on the planet, perhaps, or it'll create a better world, which I think is a laudable way to invest. But does it actually work, though? Because if you look at the different ways ESG funds are constructed, they're all sort of based on these criteria where company have to say, in a kind of tick box exercise, I meet this thing, I don't quite meet this thing yet, I'm trying to meet this criteria. And there are all these different what are called ESG frameworks, and they don't quite agree on which companies are good and which are bad. They give a score out of 100, and it varies massively. That's right. So if there was agreement between the different ESG rating companies, then you could say, well, there is some kind of objective reality here. But there's huge disagreement, you know, if even for the same company. So one of the really stark examples of disagreement is Tesla, where MSCI ranks it at the top of the car industry for sustainability. FTSE ranks it as the worst car producer globally. Right. And then there's a third company, Sustainalytics, which actually puts it in the middle. And is that because of like their rating of 
rare earth minerals in the batteries and things like that and the way they treat their staff at the plants. So FTSE says that it's because of factory emissions, which means that it's a serious offender, whereas MSCI judges it based on the carbon emissions and its clean technology. So that's why there's a huge disagreement. I mean, I suppose that makes sense because it's hard to put an objective score on morality, right? We all have different ethics and morals. Yeah, and I think that's one of the problems with ESG funds. Not everyone will agree on what's right or what's wrong. So I don't really have a problem with nuclear power, say. Or McDonald's. Or McDonald's, which I love. (laughs) But other people would have issues with that. So I think having one set of ethics for everybody just is not going to work. Whereas if you do single stocks, clearly you can just tilt any way you like and buy the companies you like. I think there's a move towards what's called custom indexing, which is slowly getting prominence, where you can sort of be a bit more bespoke in the companies you like and don't like. Yeah, so with direct indexing, you can just say, these are the ones I like, these are the sectors I want to exclude. And, you know, there may be criteria which are very specific to you. So for example, it could be based on religious reasons. You know, there may be faith-based screens, which you want to apply, which are going to be different for every religion. So, for example, in the US, there are a couple of Christian teaching-based funds which exclude very different companies from the ones that you'd find in a standard ESG fund. Yeah, so you could direct index and overweight McDonald's, or as I could put it, you know, way down on my list. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, there are certain companies which I, you know, like to support. <laughs> Is that one of them? I mean, I don't, I know I like McDonald's too. I love their hash browns. I'm addicted to them. But I mean, it, it could just be based on return expectations. So, you know, some people may not feel strongly either way. Or they may feel that even if they buy the company's shares, it's not going to have a huge impact on the company itself or its behavior. So one of the important things, I think, is that if you are a big investor, you have large amounts of capital. When you buy the shares, you become a shareholder and you can vote on the company's governance. So I think more and more what we're going to see is that we get people investing in collective vehicles like funds in order to achieve a certain goal. So, for example, if all the people that wanted to stop fossil fuels being used pulled their money into a certain fund, then if that had enough capital, it could actually vote in the shareholder meetings in order to change the corporate behaviour and maybe make a more rapid transition to renewable energy for that company. I mean, I suppose that gets right to the heart of the issue with ESG investing, which is that is it better to divest from these companies and say, I want no part of it? Or is it actually better to be a shareholder in the companies you disagree with and try and push them in a more ethical direction? Personally, I think the latter is probably the better way to go because the whole point of having a say when you buy a share is that you can change that behaviour. And I think it's better to influence it from the inside rather than starving the company of capital. Because the chances are that the company will simply go elsewhere for capital. So, for example, there was an Economist article recently which talked about how companies which are starved of capital in public markets might simply move to private equity, which is much harder to track and much harder to monitor. I think that's the case, isn't it? You have these energy companies which want to hit ESG criteria, so they might sell a mine or an oil well or whatever into private equity. So now that company hits its ESG criteria, but the oil well is still pulling out oil from the ground. It's not actually changed what's happening. Yeah, and I think that's why the approach where you say, I'm going to actively engage with the company 
and actually talk to the company directly. So you get interactions between the investors and the company itself, the corporate management. That's probably the most constructive way of changing behaviour. Or in the case of things like carbon, say, you can apply some kind of carbon tax so that that applies across the board. And it simply makes use of fossil fuels and extraction of fossil fuels more expensive. Yeah, to my mind, that's a better approach because there's something which economists talk about, which is externalities, isn't there? Which is um, something where a company is generating harm in the world. It could be pollution, could be congestion, something like that. But it's not a price that the company itself is actually paying. We're all paying that. And you need to try and disincentivize that with, yeah, like you say, a carbon tax or whatever it might be. But that's the most likely way, I think, of changing that kind of behavior. And also increasing the shift to renewable energy, because you could use some of the profits generated by the government for that particular tax and maybe put it into research on renewables, say, or even subsidising renewables. Because the other question is, how far do you go with these kind of chains of causality? Because, for example, the US puts a lot of money, as does the UK government, actually, into subsidising energy companies. So if you buy a government bond from the US or from the UK, indirectly, you're also paying to fund that. So the question is, you know, where do you stop the links of causality? Will it be one position removed, two positions removed? Because really, I mean, if you trace it far enough, it's very difficult to find ethically clean money. Yeah, but I guess if you trace it far enough, we are the ultimate source of this as consumers, right? We are filling up our cars. We are eating meat. We are doing all these things. The companies aren't, <laughs> you know, they're not producing oil and growing cows just to, <laughs> for the sake of it. It's because we want them. That's right. And, and I think personal behavior is another way to influence the world. And also the way you invest affects it too, because ultimately, if these companies are divested, so if people do take the money out, it does become more expensive for them if they need to raise more capital. And it could be in the equity market, it could be in the corporate bond market. And personally, I've spoken to somebody who actually founded his own company quite recently. And he was telling me that private equity was the route he went down. And if you have good ESG credentials, it actually increases the valuation of your company. It actually increases its valuation by a couple of notches. So it definitely has an impact, even in the private equity space. I mean, that's really interesting when it comes to stockholder returns, though, isn't it? So, yeah, it might increase the value of the company because it's getting a larger multiple. The company itself is not necessarily generating greater cash flows. It's just getting priced higher, which would imply that shareholder returns going forward are likely to be lower, right, counterintuitively, because the company's kind of overpriced. That's exactly the problem. In fact, there are lots of counter ESG exchange traded funds which are being created now with brilliant tickers like BAD <laughs> and uh, SIN is another one, I think. Yeah. But the idea is that they go for the kind of SIN stocks which do the opposite. So these are companies like energy companies, alcohol brewing companies and distributing companies or arms manufacturers, because these are companies which have been pushed down in terms of valuation. And as we both know now, if you buy a cheap company, generally that increases your returns going forward. So perversely, this has had exactly the opposite effect than you might expect. I mean, there's that famous quote, isn't there, from, a, I think it's Benjamin Graham, or maybe it's Warren Buffett, which says, in the short term, the stock market is a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. It seems to me that with ESG, the votes have been piling in, right? We're, everyone's been investing in ESG. But in the long term, is the weighing machine going to say, uh -uh, 
you're not going to make so much money. And it's pretty unclear as to whether the returns are better or worse than they would be for non-ESG funds. I actually refer to Dimson, Marsh and Staunton a lot. They should really sponsor us, shouldn't they? Yes, they should sponsor us. Uh, They actually said that we find almost no convincing studies showing that ESG funds outperform on a sustained basis. I mean, it kind of has to be the case, I would have thought, as a complete amateur, that the market is efficient, more or less. So it's going to price in the better performance of ESG funds. So it's hard to get ahead of that trend. But another interesting thing they found was that before these funds are launched, they outperform. So if they do the back tests on the stuff that would be in the index once it launches, it looks great. But then the minute the launch happens, they start underperforming. Oh, that's interesting. So there's this kind of transition period where if things are going to become ESG, then they're going to outperform. But once they become it, they will not outperform. It's kind of like an indexing effect from getting into the S&P 500, but for ESG funds. Well, that's one explanation. The other one is that they cook the books and actually make it look better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing. A lot of this is self-reported though, isn't it? Yeah. And it's often the case, actually, when you have a strategy in the back test, it looks great. Launch day, it starts underperforming. That's not just true of ESG. I think it's true of many different strategy investment styles. If I was to speculate about a reason why ESG could plausibly outperform, then I think there would be two reasons. One, those ESG compliant companies are probably less likely to get involved in corporate disasters. So, you know, an oil spill, which decimates it. And they're probably less likely to be on the wrong side of regulation. So there's those kind of two risks, which maybe apply less to ESG companies. Yeah, I think that's true. And another point is that there may be less volatility in the cash flows in future as a result of that better governance. So G is a big one because governance is really important for anyone who invests in a company. So having good governance and being a law-abiding company, clearly in the long run is a good strategy. If you you take the three things, E, S and G, I think governance is the one I can see. That will cause potentially outperformance. Whereas environmental and social factors. To me, that could cause underperformance for the stock price because you're at the risk of kind of freeloading companies pretending to comply and outcompeting the ones that are genuinely complying with environmental and social causes. Now, these things cost money. You know, if you're going to start creating a, a factory, one which is non-emitting or very energy efficient will probably have a higher initial cost. So you can see that initially the higher costs are going to erode margins. So these things come with a cost, but perhaps further down the road, they'll pay off. But I don't think it's convincing one way or the other. And the fact that the returns aren't that different immediately tells you that there isn't a huge difference in terms of profitability or in terms of margins, say. I think the evidence is mixed, isn't there? There are some studies which have shown outperformance, some which have shown underperformance. Ashwath Damodaran, who I think we both rate as a commentator. Oh, I love him. The yeah. Dean of Valuation is what he goes by, <laughs> which is great branding. Um, so he had a great article on ESG, I think it was a couple of years ago now. And he was looking at these studies where they show outperformance. And his point was, and I'm going to quote him here, do companies perform better because they are socially conscious or good companies? Or do companies that are actually doing well find it easier to do good? And he actually quotes that Credit Suisse report as well, the Dimson Marsh Staunton one. So I, I think if we do look at the long term, then eventually I suspect almost all companies will be ESG compliant. 
So just in the same way that emerging markets will be a label which is kind of irrelevant in 50 years' time because all countries eventually will be developed to some extent. Let's hope so, yeah. So I think that's why there's a kind of transition period now when we're thinking about ESG, but let's hope ultimately that all companies will move into that fold. There was an article last year which kind of went viral as much as anything can in the investment community. And it was by a man named Tariq Fancy, which is a brilliant name. It went viral because he was BlackRock's chief investment officer for sustainable investing. So the bloke in charge of ESG at the biggest asset manager in the world. And he basically said it's all a bit of a nonsense. He called it a form of financial virtue signaling. And he said that little ESG work actually affects the capital allocation decisions which is kind of what we're trying to influence, isn't it? We're trying to take money away from the dirty companies and give it to the clean ones. By no means was he the first insider to say this kind of thing, but he he was one of the most senior people to say it, certainly. And he published the essay he wrote on Dropbox, and I actually downloaded it and read it at the time. I I was pretty impressed by it because there's some brilliant quotes in it. So he said, the marketing and salespeople at BlackRock were all about ESG. They couldn't get enough of it. The portfolio managers were often the opposite. Many of them just wanted to pass the ESG test and be left alone. So I think that's the difference, right? The the fund manager just wants to get on with the job of picking the best stocks and really ESGs seen as kind of a nuisance, whereas the marketing people absolutely love the idea of ESG. Because if you want to market a fund, then what could be better? You know, you can make the world a better place and make profits, but the reality isn't quite as convincing. I think a lot of it does come from the right place, though, especially from investors. Like, I think people genuinely want to do the right thing. But as Tariq says, since ESG products generally carry higher fees than non-ESG, this represents a highly profitable and fast-growing business line for BlackRock and other financial institutions. I mean, that's definitely true. So that Vanguard fund I referenced at the start, I think the fee is 0.2%, whereas the parent index fee is 0.14%. So yeah, 50% higher fees, kind of similar to those factor funds we talked about. You're paying for it. That's why I started off with my cynical statement, which is that this is another way for active managers to increase their fees. Because if you are going to be selling the S&P 500, there's no way you're going to charge more than about 0.05% unless it's got some kind of twist to it. So they're just trying to think of all the possible twists they can have on an index fund or thematic funds or whatever in order to increase that fee. And when I looked at how it's actually composed, that index, it was kind of in a way surprising to me. I expected to go in and find that they'd made this clear distinction and got rid of all the nasty stuff in there. But then when you dig into the real rules, it says a company will not be excluded if it owns less than 50% of a subsidiary, which is excluded. So, you know, you just have to be a minority shareholder as a company in that dirty one and you're fine. It doesn't exclude financial firms that finance the dirty companies and it doesn't exclude investment trusts that are invested in the excluded companies. So there's all these kind of loopholes and the index is kind of full of stuff, which you're like, hmm, really? And this is why if you if you kind of look at the causal links, you'll never be more than, say, two steps away from something dodgy. I'm sure that's the case. It's kind of like, what's the rule about other people where you know everyone else on the planet? Six steps of separation. Six steps of separation. So maybe we should call it, you know, six steps from dodgy money. 
because eventually it's going to end up in something questionable. And I guess returning to the other point earlier, which was kind of, are we all really hypocrites here, um, filling up our cars and, you know, doing all the other things that are actually causing the pollution, is um, we obviously have a lot of press at the moment about inflation, and that's in large part caused by energy prices going up. Is one of the root causes of that, you know, an underinvestment in the fossil fuel industries? And isn't this kind of inevitable that we should expect higher prices? I think it is. And I think that if there is a lack of supply, while demand exists, and it's going to exist for some time, let's face it, then that would push up prices. So you do have to pay the price for this kind of transition. And it's easy to forget how amazingly easy it's been to live beyond our means for some very long period of time now. And the low costs we had to pay up front for that privilege. But at a certain point, <laughs> you just have to bite the bullet. And unfortunately, we'll be the generation that does that. Yeah. So we've been taking all our money away from these kind of dirty investments. And now we're like, oh, no, the prices have all gone up. I mean, yeah, right. And I've just done a video uh, about Jeremy Grantham and his super bubble idea. But another big vein of his thinking is to do with sustainable investing. And he actually pays a lot of money to, for example, Imperial College. He pays them money to produce research on sustainable investing, but also sustainability generally. And he's made this point about not having a choice about whether we invest sustainably. So ultimately, it's not going to be a matter of choice whether we do that or not. It's just something that our generation is going to have to have to do. Yeah. And I think the next generation will probably be grateful Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> no, I doubt it. No. The thing is, we it is a massive problem, climate change, right? It is going to destroy large parts of the world. I just don't know if ESG investing is one of the things that's going to help solve it, really. Like you said earlier, really, my view is the governments have to set the rules, monitor them closely, and then, you know, capital should get allocated based on those rules. It's not going to be self-fulfilling based, based on investors doing what they think is best. But expecting governments to do that is also perhaps naive because for the US, for example, a huge amount of US wealth comes from fossil fuels. And the shale oil industry is now giving that a second shot in the arm. You know, So they, they, they are almost energy self-sufficient now. So that's actually made their life more secure because they can carry on using fossil fuels and they're not so worried about what happens in the Middle East because it's not going to push up the price of oil. Oh man, so you're saying we're all doomed? I just think there are incentives for governments to carry on producing and using fossil fuels for a long time. Definitely, it's true, because you see, like, when the cost of living goes up, the backlash that happens. Yeah, it's not politically popular if the price of gasoline goes up 45% over the course of a year, as we've just had. And that has political repercussions. The cynical half of me says we're kind of completely reliant on some sort of moonshot technology to save us and pull carbon from the atmosphere. Or we could go with Elon Musk to Mars and screw up another planet. If you're interested in learning more about ESG and other topics on investing, you can do that as part of our Patreon community. To learn more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. Did you see after last week, you know, you said you wanted to live in the McDonald's metaverse, that the very next day after the show went live, yes. McDonald's announced that it's going to do metaverse ordering and restaurants and everything. What is that about? I mean, even I thought that was weird. Maybe we're just more influential than we think. No, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> 
Okay, today's dumb question of the week is why would anyone buy a bond with a negative yield? Are you not sort of guaranteed to lose money? Yes, you are. So why would you ever do that? It seems kind of crazy. The fact is, though, you don't have to hold a bond until it matures. Unlike a stock, where the only way to get rid of it and to monetize it is to sell it in the secondary market, for a bond, you can just wait until it matures. But of course, if, if the bond is going to pay you back 100 and you've paid 103 for it and there's no income coming in, then there's a $3 guaranteed loss. But the point is you don't have to wait till maturity until you monetize the bond. What you can do is sell it in the secondary market before you get there. So you'd actually buy it with the expectation that the price would rise and yields would fall. That's why people buy it. And why would yields fall further if economic conditions worsen? Is that generally the reason? Yeah. So if economic conditions get worse, generally the yield would go down and the price of the bond would rise. So that's what people are thinking when they buy negative yielding debt. Or they're so concerned about capital preservation that they think it's worthwhile buying this debt, even though it's got negative yield, because the capital loss on the bond will still be smaller than the capital loss on equity if it tanks, say, 50%. So these kind of bonds we're talking about, the negative yielding bonds, they're more or less the safe haven assets, right? They're kind of... Well, they used to be, but then we got into this weird situation where credit spreads were so tiny, that's the extra yield you get for taking the credit risk of investment-grade companies. Because that was such a tiny additional payment you'd receive in the yield. And when the risk-free rate, which is what you get with government bonds, went deeply negative... Well, adding a tiny positive thing onto that still made it negative. So a lot of investment grade corporate debt was also in negative yield territory, which was very odd. And this pushed everyone into riskier and riskier assets, right? Yeah. So this is one of the perverse things that happens when you get zero interest rates from the central banks, which is that you get negative yielding debt, misallocation of capital, you could say, and people buying ever more risky assets. In fact, if you go back to 2014, there was hardly any debt that was negative yielding. It actually peaked at just around $18 trillion worth of negative yielding debt about a year ago. And then literally in the first week of February 2022, the amount of negative yielding debt fell by $3 trillion. And that's because rates were increasing so rapidly as people were pricing in central bank rate hikes. So we're sort of returning to a more normal world. Yeah, you can think of it as yield curves becoming buoyant again, rising and reducing that amount of negative yielding debt. I think one of the other reasons I've seen that people pile into negative yielding debt, which seems counterintuitive, is that there are certain institutions which are forced to hold government bonds. Yeah, these are the institutional investors. So, for example, if you're a bank, then you actually have to calculate the riskiness of all the stuff you hold on your books. And there's a risk weighting for different types of assets. And if you hold government debt, it has a zero risk weighting. So it's kind of risk invisible from that point of view. So they're one of the big institutions that has to hold this stuff. Another one would be insurance companies. They have to have very safe investments. So they're forced buyers of government debt. So there are many institutions which actually have to hold treasuries and other government bonds. And, you know, they don't have a choice. So negative yield or not, they've got to have those treasuries. And as an individual investor with equity, I might choose to hold government bonds despite the negative yield just as a hedge, right? So if the equity tanks, the government bonds might save me as yields fall. Yeah, I remember in 2008, 
that there were people who I knew in Switzerland who were buying Swiss government bonds, which was zero coupon bonds. These things literally gave you no income and they were trading at a premium. So no income, guaranteed negative return. And uh, people were willing to take that risk because it was less risky. It was perceived as less risky than equity. Finance is just weird though, isn't it? None of it makes any sense when you think about it. (laughs) What are we doing with our lives? As you get deeper into it, it kind of does make sense. And that's the beauty of it. I think that, you know, when you understand what people see as relative risks, it kind of explains their behavior. I think one of the things as I've dug more into finance over the last four or five years is that zero is just another number, right? Negative is just on a scale. It doesn't actually mean anything differently. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yield for bonds, for example, has no lower limit. It can go literally to minus infinity. It never does go that far. We'd be in trouble if it does. We we, we would, because effectively that means you'd you'd make 100% loss. But the point is that there is no lower bound. So, for example, bonds in Germany were negative for a long period of time. They finally turned positive across some of the German yield curve. But there is no lower limit. So lots of people were saying, well, yields can't go any lower than they are now. And I was thinking, yes, they can. Of course they can. Yeah. <laughs> there, is no, there is no bound. Whereas for central banks, even, you can get negative interest rates. So for example, the Japanese central bank had negative interest rates. The US central bank, the Federal Reserve, chose not to go down that road because it was untested. And I think it probably would have spooked people, but they could have. And they still could. The Eurozone had negative interest rates as well, right? Yeah. I mean, yield is just another way of quoting price. And the people who work in fixed income are quite happy with that. It's just that when you're new to the world of bonds, it just seems a little bit weird. I mean, it seems weird because you think if the central bank has a negative interest rate, why wouldn't I just hold cash, which has zero? Well, that's one of the arguments for having physical cash, which is that if you do have physical cash, then you effectively don't have this tax on your cash holdings. So you can take all of your bank account out in the form of cash and it won't have a negative return on it. It'll just have a zero return on it. So that's the implication of the lower bound, right? Is that it's hard for a central bank to go much below zero for that reason? Well, the bank can still go negative, but people said that this would result in lots of cash hoarding the actual evidence for it's very weak. People didn't seem to do that at all. But this is one of the arguments for not having a central bank digital currency, which is that if you have physical cash, you can always take it out and the central bank can't give you negative rates. Or maybe that's one of the arguments for having central bank digital currency is that people can't escape it when a central bank wants to stimulate by cutting below zero. Well, the reason why they stimulate is to try and get the economy going again. So you could say that it's actually your patriotic duty to go out and spend money. But if you're... It's good enough for me. I'm going to buy a Tesla right now. (laughs) (laughs) But other people feel very uncomfortable with that. Understandably, I think. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It's been great to hear how many of you are enjoying the show and sharing your thoughts. If you want to get involved in the community, subscribe to the Pensioncraft YouTube channel or find us on Twitter. Our handle's at Pensioncraft. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.